All the best stories are redemption stories. Ever notice that? One of the oldest and best redemption stories is the one told in the Old Testament book of Ruth. You might not know that the story of Ruth has often been recognized, um, even in the secular world, and, um, by classic authors like Goethe, the writer of the epic play Faust, who said the book of Ruth is literature unexcelled, and quote, the loveliest complete work on a small scale ever written. In fact, Ruth is at least one of the first great love stories ever told. And like most great stories of love, the theme of Ruth is redemption. Perhaps a modern day example will help you understand what I mean when I talk about Ruth being a story of redemption. George Lucas has stated that Star Wars is a story of the redemption of Anakin Skywalker a.k.a. Darth Vader. And redemption is precisely what makes the story great. The tragedy is the fall of Skywalker, but this only builds suspense until in the final moments of the story, his son Luke says, I'm going to save you. To which the now elderly dying Anakin says, you already have. Later, Anakin appears in the heavens, as it were, restored and standing with the likes of Yoda and Obi-Wan Kenobi, the good guys. And so the audience smiles. For some reason, the very idea that someone as evil as Vader could be redeemed in the end appeals to us all. You'll find that most of the best stories and many of the classics contain the element of redemption. Why? Because redemption solves our biggest problem. Redemption offers hope, even in the face of our universal and global desperation, which is the hopelessly fallen human condition. Deep down, most humans know that we desperately need to be saved from ourselves. This is why the stories that speak to our souls best are redemption stories. I'm very excited about the short series we're starting today. And while the title of the book we'll be studying is Ruth, in many ways it is actually the story of the redemption of Naomi. Ruth is sort of the heroine of the story, but Naomi is the one who's most obviously restored, and that is probably the closest thing to a synonym for redemption, restoration. If you've ever restored anything, you know that restoration comes with a substantial cost. Often it would have been cheaper to buy a new item than to restore the old one. In a similar way, the word redemption includes a monetary connotation. Biblically speaking, to redeem something is literally to buy it back. Let's say that you're in desperate need, and so you take your best guitar, or your best rifle, or your best uh, jewelry, and you sell it at a pawn shop. Later that night, you can't sleep. All you can think about is someone walking in and snatching up your treasure. The next day you find yourself back at the pawn shop playing close to twice as much 
as what you sold the item for just to bring it back home. You see, at that point, you have redeemed the item. You bought it back. And now, being twice bought, your treasured possession holds even more value for you. Now, imagine if instead of something like a guitar or jewelry, we were talking about a puppy. And imagine that instead of selling her, the precious little thing had run away. And now you are buying her again from wherever she got caught, from wherever she was locked up. And perhaps she is a little worse for the wear, maybe not even a puppy anymore. Perhaps you missed out on those years, but you pay the price anyway to bring her home. See, redemption is incredibly unfair to the one doing the redeeming. Because in redemption, the purchaser pays for the same thing twice. And the price goes up when we're talking about people. We're born belonging to God, at least in one sense, because He created us and gave us the miracle of life. We are made in His image. However, because of the curse of sin on humanity, we are born separated from a holy God, and in addition, we choose to run away from Him for at least a portion of our lives. The Bible says we're all born in sin, and we all choose sin. We all run away from God and wind up trapped in a cage of our own design. The cost to buy us back was God's only Son, Jesus. That's why his final word from the cross was tetelestai, which literally means paid in full. Jesus paid for us with his life. Our salvation was bought with a heavy price, and because that price was paid, redemption is now available to whosoever will receive it by grace through faith. The book of Ruth foreshadows the redemption of Christ with beautiful allegory. And the cool thing is that even while it so perfectly illustrates and symbolizes the future, it is also real history and a true story. I can hardly wait to see what God has to show us from Ruth. Today we'll look at the first 18 verses of chapter 1. Let's read it together from verse 1. Once upon a time, or perhaps you might prefer, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Verse 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malin and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem in Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malin and Chilion also died, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was, and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. 
And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw, Naomi saw, that, she was, that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. Already, before we even get to the real meat of this story, even in this introductory material, we can see the theme of redemption. And one of the most important things we need to understand about redemption is that while it is solely an act of God, redemption also requires our choice, and particularly our faith. We are not puppies. We are people. Our response to God's offer of redemption is required. Each of us is responsible before God, and we must choose to believe in order to receive the gift of redemption. This does not take away from the fact that the redeeming is all the work of God. In our story this morning, we can see several choices being made. We see Elimelech and Orpah making choices to move away from God, while later Naomi and Ruth make choices to move toward God and the redemption he offers. Let's look at some of these choices in more detail. First of all, choice one, Elimelech chose to walk away from God. Maybe that seems a harsh statement. After all, wasn't this man just trying to provide for his family? I wonder how many times a man has moved further away from God by that very reasoning. Let's read the first part of the story again and think through this together. The book of Ruth begins with the choice of Elimelech from verse 1. Now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. Let's stop right there for a moment. What we have here is a difficult circumstance. The economy in Judah is bad, very bad. There's a supply chain problem in Bethlehem. Inflation is through the roof. Times are tough. And everyone says... It's only going to get worse. Have any of you ever faced difficult circumstances? <laughs> of course you have. We all have. So we need to remember this. Whenever life gets tough, followers of God basically, basically have two choices, uh, two options and one choice to make. During our trials, we can either draw nearer to God or we can move further away from Him. 
During our trials, we can either draw nearer to God or we can move further away from Him. That is our choice. And it sounds so simple, but it's important to understand that this is a choice. And I make this choice every time I face difficulty. You do too. Think about it. You'll choose to look to God to see you through the storm, or you will choose to seek help elsewhere and go without God to one degree or another. You may not realize this is happening, but you will make this choice every time difficult circumstances come into your, uh, into your life. Every time you face disappointment, discouragement, difficulty, loss, or suffering, either you will draw near to God, seeking Him more than ever, or you will move further away, taking matters into your own hands, and maybe even resenting God for letting it happen. So, what is your tendency? Which way do you generally go? Do hard things drive you into the presence of God or further away from Him? What do you usually choose? You may want to be more intentional about this choice after today because as you'll see, your choices can have real consequences. Let's see what Elimelech chooses. Reading on, And a certain man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech and the name of his wife Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malan and Chilion, Ephrathites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Quickly, let me explain that the ancient name for the area surrounding Bethlehem was Ephrath. So that's why they were called Ephrathites. This, of course, is the same Bethlehem where Jesus was later born, basically a suburb of Jerusalem. The prophet Micah predicted that Jesus would be born there, saying, But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore he will give them up until the time when she who is in labor has born a child. By the way, who existed from the days of eternity other than God? Jesus is God. The little town of Bethlehem was in the heart of God's country, was often at the heart of God's story. Moab, however, was not in the heart of God's country. Moab was the land on the other side of the Dead Sea, due east from Bethlehem. And note that it was officially outside the borders of the promised land where God's chosen people were supposed to live. Remember the promised land is that land flowing with milk and honey, according to the promise of God. The place he had allotted for his chosen people Having, prom having promised it to Abraham, having returned them to this land after their 400-year sojourn in Egypt, bringing them back home, doing so both through miraculous exodus and through challenging conquest. Perhaps the greatest miracles in history had been done in order to bring these people into this land. And yet, now a little famine one apparently small enough not to be recorded anywhere else. And Elimelech decides maybe it's a good idea to head over and join the folks in Moab, whom God had already said would be judged at a later date. This brings up an important perspective we need to understand when reading the Old Testament. Maybe you think I'm being too hard on Elimelech, but please take note that in Old Testament times, God's presence and promises were tied to geography. God actually made a huge point of this in many different ways. 
even though God has always been omnipresent, that is, everywhere at once. In the Old Testament, he chose to manifest himself around such things as the Ark of the Covenant, the tabernacle, later the temple. And so during the time of the Old Testament, it was understood that God's presence rested especially in the promised land. This place was to be sort of like heaven on earth. And so understand that a decision to move out of the promised land away from the people of God was absolutely a decision to move away from God. And certainly it was a decision to move away from God's plan for his people. Elimelech was stepping away from God and his plan. Worse, he was leading his entire family to do the same. We need to understand this. Through his prophets, whose words are now recorded in our scripture, God had communicated that he was in the process of establishing a name for himself, and he wanted the people called by his name to be geographically separated from the people who did not know him. Elimelech was being disobedient and demonstrating a lack of trust in the promises of God as he moved his family to a foreign, seemingly God-forsaken land where polytheistic paganism reigned and Yahweh, God of Israel, was not worshipped. So again, in the Old Testament, remember that God's promises were much more tied to geographic location. Now, briefly, when did this change? Jesus said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses both here in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the remotest parts of the earth, Acts 1.8. After Jesus rose again, he said, I must ascend back into heaven so that the Holy Spirit can be poured out upon the whole earth. When the Holy Spirit came, God was no longer to be associated with any particular location. Not with Jerusalem, not with the temple, not even with the promised land. And because the Holy Spirit came, God is now with us everywhere we go, even to the remotest parts of the earth. I'm thankful for that since my daughter's a missionary over there in Oaxaca, Mexico. The Bible even says God's people have now become his temple. Those who trust Jesus as Savior are filled with the Holy Spirit. And now we take God with us wherever we go, wherever he leads, anywhere on this planet. Everything changed when the Holy Spirit was poured out upon the earth. But we must remember that this had not yet happened in Elimelech's time. In his day, to leave the promised land was to move away from God. There's absolutely no doubt about it. Elimelech chose put his trust in himself and what he could do instead of the promised provision of God. Why didn't the rest of the people in Bethlehem move? Maybe they knew better. Elimelech's choice was displeasing to the Lord because it demonstrated the most basic of human sins, a lack of trust in God, a tendency to choose our own way. Now, I'm sure none of us have ever made choices like this, right? I mean, none of you have ever walked away from God's people or from God's plan, or from God's presence, right? None of you have ever decided to go your own way, to make your own solution, rather than praying and waiting and trusting in God's solution, right? No, of course, we've all been guilty of this. We do just exactly what Elimelech did. We react. We panic. We choose poorly. When facing difficulty, we don't wait and seek God and trust in Him. Instead, we jump out of the frying pan right into the fire. We don't seek God and His plan first. Maybe we seek Him last, if at all. 
Did you know the word Bethlehem means house of bread? Elimelech left the house of bread for a land God later cursed because of their particularly sick and twisted idolatry. Initially, Elimelech probably got some relief, I would bet. But what did it cost him in the end? Let's read on from verse 3. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other was Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malin and Chilion also died. And the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. What do we get when we move away from God? What do we get when we do not wait on the Lord, when we do not trust in Him, when we go our own way and try our own thing instead of trusting God's way and following His path? We get death. That's what. Death. First comes spiritual death meaning broken fellowship with God, and if there is no repentance, eventually our sin actually can lead to literal, premature death. There are sins that lead to premature death. When we move toward God, we move toward life. When we move away from God, we move toward death. Why? Because God is the source of life. He is living water. He is life. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Real life comes through Christ. Life apart from him is death in differing degrees. And the further away from God you go, the more death will reign in you. When Elimelech left the promised land, he moved away from God. He moved away from faith in the promises of God. He was unwilling to wait and be And he subverted the plan of God for his life. Even though God later redeemed the situation and restored his family name, as we will see, it still cost Elimelech dearly. We should take note, in spite of the fact that God's sovereign plan will ultimately be accomplished, God will not be mocked. We will reap what we sow. Our choices have consequences. But enough of that. Let's see what we can learn from Naomi. Choice two, Naomi chose to return to God. From verse six, then Naomi arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return from the land of Moab, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. Let's pause right there for a moment. You may think it's strange, but my favorite character in this book is Naomi. I think part of it is that she was a decisive woman who led in biblically appropriate ways. She was also very real. And notice that when it came time to move forward in the right direction, Naomi forged ahead. When leadership came to her, even though she hadn't been leading before, she made the best of her moment. She led. When her moment came, our text says, she arose. I like that. She picked herself up out of the ashes and got on with it. Naomi arose and she began to take responsibility for her own life. Her husband was dead and now it was her turn to lead. 
Unlike her late husband, Naomi led in the right direction. She may not have had all the best motives or the best attitude yet, as we'll see, but regardless, she started moving her family, if vaguely, still toward God. And more clarity came as she moved forward. Make no mistake, as Naomi chose to return to the promised land in some way, even with a bad attitude, she was still choosing to return to God. Her faith was imperfect but it was still faith. Let's read on, verse 8. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me and the dead. May the Lord grant that you may find rest each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I'm too old to have a husband. And all of this about how I'm not going to have sons for you to marry. Let me just pause again and explain that in that culture and in those comparatively um, barbaric times, a young lady without a husband had little hope. The culture was simply geared that way. There was almost no possibility for a young woman to provide for herself, short of beggary. You, you may or may not like this, but in those days, childbearing was the highest value for women. And honestly, that was for good reason. The reason being the survival of the entire family and perhaps the entire community. Children grew up to work in the home and in the fields. There was strength in numbers. And there was wealth and well-being in a large, strong family. They had no police force. For the most part, no government. Families were on their own. And so the bigger the family, the better off they were. It's difficult for us to understand, but that is the way it was. Naomi couldn't begin to expect these girls to stay with her because it was basically cultural suicide for them to do so. Let's read on. No, my daughters, it's harder for me than for you. Kind of like, you still got a chance. For the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. We need to understand that Naomi was making a very difficult choice to return home. At this point, the only people who she's close to are these girls. And she can't expect them to come along. Even though she has heard that there is now bread in Judah, the decision to leave these girls and their new home behind took faith. It wasn't an easy decision. In those days, a week-long journey without the protection of her husband and sons would have surely been treacherous. As I said, her faith is imperfect and perhaps small, but it is enough, as we will see. Even if her attitude isn't the greatest, Naomi demonstrates a basic understanding that it is time to turn around. She knows where she needs to go. She has somehow heard from God, and somehow deep within, she knows that He is calling her home. Now that she's responsible, she leads her family in the right direction, back to God. Let's think about some of the nuances. First of all, notice that Naomi understands the importance of choice, the importance of choice. I love this. If you look back at verse 7, you'll see that the two daughters-in-law have already picked up and started traveling with her. They're ready to go. Apparently, they'd already started the journey when Naomi stopped in verse 8. Perhaps she had a moment of wisdom and realized 
She needed to give them a chance to make a true decision. She said, you really probably should just go home. These two young ladies are willing to follow their strong and capable mother-in-law. Just kind of toe the line, just walk behind her. But both of them love her. They want to be with her. We can see that. She has influence. They want to follow her lead. But Naomi realizes at some point that they need to make a deeper decision than just following her. They need to make a personal decision if they're going to return to the promised land with her. That there's a spiritual choice involved in going back to God's people. Somehow Naomi knows she needs to create a crisis of faith moment for these two girls. I see Naomi as a great leader. In fact, her wisdom and leadership skills can be clearly seen throughout this book. I personally believe she hoped that these young ladies would choose to go along with her. But she knew they needed to make their own choice. She couldn't choose for them, and she led them to choose for themselves. People are sometimes hard on Naomi for her attitude, which we will see even more clearly next week. But I want you to think about where she's coming from. Naomi says, it's harder for me than for you. For the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. Guess what? Naomi was exactly right in her assessment. The hand of God had gone forth against her and her family. This wasn't a bad attitude as much as it was clarity of thought and faith. She has faith that God acts according to his character. She knows that God is real and he does real stuff in the world. Today, we're so quick to assume that God never disciplines his own. We are wrong. He does. Obviously, some people go to the other extreme and blame God for every bad circumstance in their life that comes into their life. Like God's up there just waiting to zap them with a cattle prod at every turn. And those people are typically very, very unhappy as they constantly wonder what they did to draw God's ire. That's no way to live. But listen, no blanket statements can be made about God never bringing pain into your life. You'll need to look at each circumstance and try to understand what may be God's discipline and what clearly is not God's discipline. You certainly can't assume that every difficulty comes from God, but neither can you assume that God never uses difficulty to rein you in. Because newsflash, he does. Right now, the important thing is that in this instance, Naomi is exactly right. God's hand has indeed gone against her. She's pretty ticked off about it, frankly, and maybe even depressed. But on the other hand, instead of choosing to let her anger and her depression drive her further away from God, she starts moving in the right direction. Like in the story of the prodigal son, God's discipline begins to actually work. And Naomi's finally ready to go home. Here's the point for us. Whether our difficulty is directly caused by God or simply allowed by Him, trouble and loss can lead us back home. Hard times can lead to better times if we let those hard times drive us to God. Even if hard times linger, they're easier to endure while walking toward Him rather than continuing to move further away. That won't help. But notice also that Naomi's still not happy with God right now. She's disappointed with God, to say the least, and that's okay. God is big enough to handle it when we're angry with Him and when we don't understand or don't like what He's doing. 
God can handle that. The important thing is that even in her frustration and anger, Naomi makes the right choice. It seems so obvious. But Naomi's decision boils down to this understanding. It is better to go with God than to go against Him. I realize that seems painfully obvious, but how often do we live like we don't understand this? It's better to go with God than to go against Him. Sometimes I wish I could just take somebody by the collar, you know, and just say that. (laughs) What did it take for Naomi to realize this truth? And how about you? What would it take for you to make Naomi's choice, even in your anger and frustration with God? What have you lost? Naomi lost her husband and both her sons. She's not the least bit happy with God right now. She even blames God. She pretty much hates her life, it would seem. And yet she starts walking in the direction of her path leads back home to him. Let me ask you a question. Which way are you walking? Have you experienced some difficult circumstances? Which way are you walking? What would it take for you to turn around and walk back to the Lord? He'll take you as you are, anger, fear, doubt, doesn't matter. If you'll simply choose to start walking back to God, a process of redemption can begin. And that's exactly what happens in our story, redemption. But also notice that it doesn't happen overnight. Let's consider the third choice in today's text. Choice three, Ruth chose to follow God. Ruth chose to follow God. I have a confession to make. I think I'm in love with Ruth. In my mind, she has fair skin, red hair, and blue eyes. Somehow she looks just like Christy. Naomi is my mom, of course. And in my mind, I enter the story a little bit later as the studly hero named Boaz. I'm in love with Ruth. But the reason I love Ruth is because she chose to risk it all on God. And to that I say, what a woman. There's no reason for her to be like this. She's not supposed to be like this. She's supposed to be a pagan. She's supposed to be depraved. She's supposed to be destined for God's wrath. I mean, from a chosen people kind of perspective, she's supposed to be out. She's a Moabite for crying out loud. She's not supposed to choose Yahweh, but she does. Let's pick it back up from verse 14. Then Naomi said, behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. Let's stop right there for a second. Can you perceive anything in Naomi's voice here? I personally hear something less than an earnest plea. Maybe I'm reading it. I don't know. But I hear a hint of disappointment in Orpah. 
maybe even a moment of pouting. This is where I get the idea that in spite of her invitation to return home, she secretly hopes all along that they will return with her to the Lord's land. Let's read on, verse 16. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you, to turn back from following you. For wherever you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, your God my God. Where you die, I will die, there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. Ruth says, your people will be my people, and your God, my God. And then essentially she says, until death do us part. <laughs> I mean, what a commitment. These verses are some of my favorites in the Old Testament. I think one, one reason is that I've always loved stories of loyalty. Loyalty is a godly value because it points to the trustworthiness and everlasting faithfulness of our Father in heaven. Sometimes you come in with other things on your mind. Sometimes I come in with other things on my mind. <clears throat> I'm just going to stop for a second. I'll come back. <clears throat> you know, I was going to do this at the end, but I'll do it now. <clears throat> a good friend and a pastor in our church is in a bad spot. Dr. Randy Adams um, when I think of loyalty, I think of him. It came into my mind. And uh, most of you know he's had a um, pul pulmonary embolism. He passed out walking. He, he's probably about the healthiest. He is the healthiest man of his age that I know. He's healthier than I am. And this hit. And um, we just found out right before church that just some more information about just how blessed he is to be alive. Um, the doctor said it was the largest embolism he's ever seen. It was just a wonder that I many you can die on the spot from that. And there's there's hope. There's there's a process that hopefully he's going to take care of things. But I just want to stop for a minute. He's one of the pastors of this church. He's on our pastor elder team. And most of you know he can't be here very often because he's always preaching in different places. He's the executive director of the Northwest Baptist Convention. Um, he has, you know, 500 churches that he relates to and leads. And so, and uh, we've been pretty, very good friends for, since we've lived here, nine years. Um, and some of the rest of you are very close to him as well. So I just want to pause and have a moment of prayer. And as a matter of fact, uh, if we can have the, uh, where's the other microphone? Does, do we have it? I want to ask, I'm going to ask Bevan because I, I probably can't get through it. And I need to be able to finish this sermon in a minute. I'm going to ask Bevan, our, one of our other pastors, to lead a prayer for Randy. Bevan's known him even longer than I have. So just, just lead us in a prayer. Y'all be praying for Randy as Bevan leads us. Father God, we thank you that uh, in the name of Jesus we can come to you and we can declare our faith in you and we can declare our trust in you. Lord, our hearts are burdened for Paul and for Randy. But Lord, we come in prayer. We come in hope. We believe that you did not let him die yesterday because you still have plans for him. 
And God, we ask at this very moment that your healing hand would be upon his body, that there would be no further clots that would create problems, that you would heal him. We pray, God, for Paula. We know she is uh, clearly upset and challenged to her point of breaking. But we ask, Lord, that right now you would be with her, with his two sons, with his two daughter-in-laws. Lord, we thank you that you've told us because of your word that we can come in faith and pray believing, and we do that today. We submit ourselves, though, to your will and know that we never lose when we follow you, and we trust you completely today for Randy and Paula. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Bevan. <clears throat> Thank you. As I was saying, loyalty is a godly value because it points to the trustworthiness and everlasting faithfulness of our Father in heaven. The best loyalty is always rooted in God, just as Ruth's loyalty is here. Basically, Naomi was bringing Ruth to God, and now they've become committed to each other. With God as the glue that will hold them together forever. I also have a great appreciation for biblical covenants, and that is precisely what this is. Ruth makes a covenant with Naomi here, and she words it beautifully. This is a covenant of godly fellowship and love. Their relationship becomes exceedingly special as this covenant is made. Some commentaries suggest that Naomi's nonverbal response might mean that she isn't all that happy about this, but that makes no sense to me. It just doesn't add up. What she is, folks, is convicted. She's convicted by Ruth's response. Naomi sees a commitment from Ruth that she should have had herself. And this is the arc of the story. Eventually, the new believer helps the old believer find revival. It's just so beautiful, and all, it all leads to redemption for them both. Think about what we have here. We have a picture of the conversion experience of Ruth. In New Testament terminology, basically Ruth just got saved. And these verses contain her testimony. She's no longer the pagan Moabitess, enemy of God. Now by a tiny mustard seed of imperfect, uninformed faith, she has become a child of God. I believe Ruth becomes a new person in this moment of choice. Old things are passed away, all things have become new. Ruth moves from death to life, from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. She is no longer approaching a dead-end eternity apart from God, but now instead, by faith, she is guaranteed eternal life. By faith, this precious young woman is now a daughter of Yahweh. Hallelujah. Our God saves. By the way, if this had been in the New Testament, the next thing we would read about would be her baptism. It's what always comes immediately after conversion in the New Testament, almost every time. But notice the personal nature of this decision. Within her covenant, in verse 17, Ruth refers to God as the Lord. You might have missed that. She refers to God as the Lord. That is Yahweh in the original Hebrew. She doesn't refer to God in a generic sense, but instead calls Him by His holy name. Ruth's commitment is to the God. The Lord. 
Elohim of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yahweh, which by the way is a reference to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Both Christ and the Spirit are also referred to as the Lord, Yahweh, in Scripture. Ruth's faith is not fully informed, but it is nonetheless placed in the only one who can save her. Now, the book of Ruth in this sermon series is about what? Redemption. The power of a good redemption story comes in our understanding the desperation of the one who needs to be redeemed. Ruth was a Moabite woman. Moabites worshipped a pagan god known as Shamash, and their worship was so vile as to require infant sacrifice. Moab was a wicked place. Ruth had a rough background. She didn't come from a Christian home. She grew up on the wrong side of the Dead Sea. This kid had been the furthest thing from a follower of Yahweh God. She was probably a liberal Democrat. That was a joke. But it's true that Ruth likely believed a lot of things, had a lot of opinions that were antithetical to what God had revealed in his work. The point for us is none of that mattered. What mattered was her new commitment to faith in Yahweh. Let's not forget also that Ruth has just lost her husband and prior to having any children, things are not going well for her. Times are tough. She's probably going hungry, literally not having enough to eat. But like Naomi, Ruth allows her loss to drive her to God and not the other way around. In her moment of choice, Ruth chooses to follow God. Now, how much do you think Ruth understood about her choice at this point? Not a whole lot. She had probably never been to the promised land. All she had seen was a family that had chosen to leave the company of God's people. She may not have had a very good idea of what it meant to be a follower of God, but her choice was sincere nonetheless, and so her personal journey to know God began. So you don't have to understand or even agree with everything before you make a decision to follow Christ. All you have to know is that you are tired of going it alone and to be ready to risk whatever you have left to go his way with his people. But let's not forget that there was another choice made here, wasn't there? What about Orpah? She chose to go back to her people and her gods. She wasn't a particularly bad person. I mean, she loved Naomi too. And at first she even wanted to go with her, but when push came to shove and it was really time to decide, she walked. She walked away. The sad truth is that far more people choose the path of Orpah than the path of Ruth. What about you? Choices have consequences. The consequences of Ruth's choice are far-reaching, more far-reaching than you can possibly imagine if you don't know the rest of the story, but I'll save the rest for later. Let me close with a question. Which person in our story do you identify most with? Maybe you find yourself more like a Limelech at this point. You're in God's family. You're a Christian. 
There was a time when you trusted Christ, received God's forgiveness for your sins, but at some point, you sort of checked out. You walked out of the promised land because it wasn't perfect. And maybe there was a famine in the land. (laughs) Instead of waiting and enduring and trusting, you left. But there's good news because unlike Elimelech in the story, you're not dead yet. You can still come home. Maybe you're like Naomi, still with questions, maybe even an attitude or whatever baggage you carry, but you're at least ready to start walking in the right direction. I'd encourage you to get with God in prayer in just a moment and make a commitment to come all the way home. But some of you are right there with Orpah and Ruth. The moment of choice is here. Will you choose, like Orpah, to go back to life without God or with substitutes for God? Or will you choose, like Ruth, to risk it all on a no-loopholes covenant with the God who revealed Himself in Jesus Christ? I do realize Jesus hasn't made it into the story yet. He comes in later through the archetype of a godly man named Boaz, but just know that Jesus is the one who makes redemption possible. It was Jesus in the Old Testament, and it is Jesus in the New Testament. What he did on the cross reached back into history just as it reached forward into the future, just as they trusted in God for the Messiah to come. Their hope in Yahweh included hope in Jesus. So we trust in the Messiah who came and is coming again. Jesus Christ came as Yahweh in the flesh. The sacrifice for our sins. To trust in Him is to trust in God, just as Ruth did. He is offering a covenant relationship to you. The rest of your story depends upon this choice. Will yours be a story of redemption or simply of loss? Will you follow him or continue down your own path? It all starts with a choice, a choice to turn away from other things and turn to him for grace and forgiveness. This choice, this faith opens the door, allowing you to be redeemed by God and you'll be even given you'll even be given the ability to follow Jesus by the power of his spirit. You know, Ruth didn't understand it all either at first. But she did make a decision. Will you decide today? Yes or no? If it's yes, would you nail it down by telling God? You know, like she did, by making a covenant commitment with God in prayer? Will you let His people be your people, warts and all? If so, pray with me. Let me help you make a commitment to God in Christ. Let's pray. We know more than, you, than Ruth did. It's the same God. The exact same God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is the one calling to you. Without Him calling to you, you wouldn't even have any chance of responding. But because He is calling to you, you can, we can, you can respond with a choice, a decision to perceive and to trust in Him. So is that you today? Is He calling 
Jesus wants to be your Savior. He'd love to, he'd love to, to apply the, 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 what he did on the cross to your life. He'd love for you to be one of his. He's reaching out to you. Would you respond? Would you just say yes to God? Would you say yes? I want you to be my God, Yahweh. Father, Son, and Spirit. Jesus, be my Lord. Save me. Would you just cry out to him in your heart? He can help you do that if you'll just respond with the tiniest bit of faith that he empowers. Would you respond today to Jesus and say yes? Just make a quick covenant with him and know that you don't have to understand it all. Ruth didn't understand it all. I've seen five, six-year-olds understand enough. If they understand that they've sinned, they need to turn away from that sin and turn to Jesus and he's the only one that can help them. God takes care of the rest. The process of discipleship is after that. Have you ever made this, had this moment of responding to God with faith? And that moment he will save you forever. Is it today? Say yes to God. And even as you do, I just pray that you'll let us know so I can talk to you a little bit more about next steps and what this all means. Father, for some of the rest of us, it's Elimelech, it's Naomi. We've got things, decisions we need to make. I pray that those uh, commitments would be made today, that we would turn while we have time, not harden our hearts against you, but turn to you and let you save us from ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www.gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.